Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Cretans, Cretans. Welcome to Brew, Brew Strong. There you go. Welcome. Uh, we're uh, live. Live. <laughs> Seated. Seated. Yeah. I've got a beer, which is going to help me because I, I don't know. I, I didn't get much sleep last night, so I'm just like lagging in the my mental acuity is a little behind the curve here. A little, little slow. Uh, Don't worry, Jamil. I can't tell the difference. Exactly. <laughs> Seems same as always. <laughs> same, same. Um, you know you know who else is? No, who isn't slow is uh, our good friend John Blue. Right. Is Mr. It- Speedy himself. <laughs> yes. I've, I've heard he's, he's quick. Um, I'm not sure at what, but I've heard he's quick. Uh, uh, for me, I think he is a quick wit. Yes. Gritty individual. And he's also very quick and in, ingenious in, in, in making new brewing gear. So if you uh, are into brewing, you know, I guess there's some people who actually listen to this that aren't into brewing. I hear that uh, many spouses and children are subjected to this show. Uh, why? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's a, a torture thing. Uh, but uh, if you're into brewing, check out uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. Check out our good friends at Blickman Engineering. They make uh, you know great brew gear to innovate your brew day. Uh, whether you be a professional brewer at uh, you know uh, uh, five gallon or five barrel system, five barrel, ten barrel, or you know you're you're just starting out in uh, home brewing and you need uh, you know a good uh, five five gallon uh, pot uh, kettle uh you know everything from the anvil to the uh, to the blickman uh, and everything in between i got quality gear good people he's been paying for the show since it started uh i highly suggest if you don't mind and you enjoy the show send an email to uh, a good friend john blickman uh you can send it to feedback at blickmanengineering.com he sent that email up just so he could get uh, feedback from this show. Tell him how much uh, you love it or we suck. That's fine. Uh, just as long as he knows people are listening, uh, it would be appreciated. Uh, today on the show, we have Nick uh, Galton Finzi, who is uh, uh, a, a uh, world traveling brewing consultant, been uh, to many different breweries in many, uh, many different lands. And uh, as a friend of mine, and uh, I wanted to uh, bring him on because I think, you know, he's got an interesting story that to me is, you know, put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, if you're, if you're 
whatever you love doing, if you do that, uh, it'll lead you places and you'll, you'll have a very interesting uh, life and career because of it. So Nick, uh, first off, right now you're in Southern Wales. Um, just just down in southern um, UK at the moment. So I'm in um, in a place called Rochford, just outside of Brighton. And yes, currently working in South Wales um, on a new project up there for a group called Y Valley Meadery, and they've just uh, their first foray into brewing. So you know, to uh, to an American, uh, you know, it always fascinates me. You're in South Wales, but so. New South, you're you're Australian, so New South Wales in <laughs> Australia is uh, from. I mean, how does that relate to Southern Wales? It's they thought that that was like Southern Wales. Yeah. I believe that's how it sort of came about, and um, the the topography yeah. very very similar, but um, the uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see what Old South Wales looks like. I have travelled. Fairly extensively through New South Wales, and so now I've visited Old South Wales as well. And that is a lovely, lovely part of the country. The um, the history up there, the 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 um, the beer and the people are wonderful. Very, very. Um, cool. yes. It's a great place to live. The, the, the Welsh people are just fantastic. And, and again, as a as a simple American, uh, I'm just stunned at. You know, a place called York, and there's New York, and I'm just oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, <laughs> and there is also a York in Western Australia as well. So there's uh, oh. they've been named all over the place from the original. You know, where, where a lot of uh, where a lot of those settlements came from. So they uh, got named very very similarly. And I, I I'm a big fan of uh, of those areas. So that's that's a lot of fun. Anyways, you uh, you you born and raised in in australia and uh west australia that is or west australia yeah uh, wa <laughs> wa that's it it's uh i was i was actually um, born in born in Papua new guinea um oh, uh, and then um yeah we headed to australia after that i've lived in australia for most of my life and until for the like the last four years the last four years have been a very intense um traveling but uh a lot has been through australia it's a it's a wonderful place i'm sure both of you have visited um visited that area and specifically probably the southwest region where most of our breweries actually come from so yeah. uh, we have i think it's just shy of about 80 breweries in western australia now so it's a, a very big growing nice. scene there a lot of very talented brewers and um, a lot of innovation. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. I can't wait to host you both when, um, when we can all head back to Australia, including myself. So, and uh, we'll be able to do a bit of exploration uh, in uh, that area. That'd be nice. Yeah. Yeah, I recall. You know, when I first went to Australia, you know, the beer at some of the breweries I thought was was okay. You know, wasn't wasn't you know, there were a few great ones and a lot of them were, were okay. And, you know, the home brew was, uh, there was a couple of great brewers and there was a lot of so-so stuff. And then, you know, you go back, you know, a couple of years later and a couple of years later, and then all of a sudden you're just like, wow, yeah, you know, this is really going strong in within a period of five years. I think, you know, they made up like 50 years of, of ground. 
I was so impressed at how quickly uh, brewing was evolving in Australia. And I think it's just kind of a mindset there of, uh, you know, improvement. And it was, it was pretty impressive. And, you know, the last time I was there, I was like, man, this is great. You know, everybody's brewing great beer all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. Um, with so much competition, that's exactly, exactly right. You know, there was a lot of breweries that had sprung up um, in, in the last five to eight years. And as a consequence of that, they've, uh, you know, the breweries that were, had, had pioneered and had established were now having to not just produce beer, but they were having to produce good beer. Um, right. So it, uh, it lifted everyone's game and that, that level of competition that did go up, there was a lot of deregulation that had happened in Western Australia and in Queensland. And uh, as a consequence of that, there was a lot more players that were now, now in, that, uh, in that area. So it's good, really good thing. Well, and you started as a, a home brewer, and then you opened a, a brewery uh, yeah. in Australia. Yep. In- um, I uh, I started home brewing at age seventeen. I, uh, I was helping a, a friend of mine uh, and his father clean out his garage, and uh, we'd stumbled across uh, what was an old Alinda fermenter. So it was a nineteen seventies brand Australia. This thing had sat dormant for a number of years. And uh, um, we dug we dug this thing out. And, uh, Bill promised us that when we'd finished cleaning out the garage at the end of the day, he would show us how to make beer. And, um, and we, uh, we we did make that beer, and um, uh, it was terrible, absolutely dreadful. And uh, I wonder how I can um, I wonder how I can make this better. There's there's got to be a science behind it, and, uh, you know. Uh, through my parents had a bit of a, a science background, and I thought, well. I'm going to I'm going to learn this and I'm going to master this and I'm still doing it sort of 25 years later. Well, and being in Australia, you probably started drinking at age seven or eight. About six, I think, is where they normally okay. start. Going in normal. So you already you already had like 11 years of drinking experience. So, uh, yeah, you knew what you were that the beer was bad. It was time to have some quality behind it as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so did you did you pursue that and keep uh, keep home brewing or how did how did you transition from that into opening your own place? So um I I I, I had um by the time I'd sort of hit 18, 19, I'd I'd colonized my parents' garage and there was uh there were bottles and there were trials and samples. I, I was um I was even trialing things like um the very early hop oils and hop oil emulsions. Um, so this was uh, this was back in 1995, and and they were very very new to market. And um, one of the guys who owned the homebrew shop sort of took me under his wing. And uh, every single time I went in there, I said, "Oh, so what's 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 new on the products this week? Where have we come?" And we've been very lucky in Australia with um, the Cooper's homebrew kits, which were which were very good quality from from day one. And I'm not sure if those sort of same sort of level of quality were available in the US. Um, but um, yeah, the Australian Cooper's kits were were very good, and that's how I that's how I learned. And um, I just slowly, as I developed um, uh, the knowledge, I'd I'd, uh, I'd try a new ingredient and a new batch and. Every single time I brewed, I would just change one aspect. So that way I got a very good understanding about what the flavor change was. Um, 
and then yeah, slowly built up my knowledge, which is which is good. Well, and you also went to university for biology and uh, uh, environmental sciences and, and biochemistry. Hmm. Uh, and and did you when you were going to university was that your your goal was to learn about brewing or no not at all i'd already i'd already been brewing for a fair fair um fair time and at university it was just a means about being able to supply me and my buddies with um um quality homebrew so i i would always rock up to the parties with um, what I'd made and share it around and everyone could have a bit of a try. And uh, that sort of progressed all the way through to when I started working. So um, uh, I would then showcase every single time I had a new new beer and I would showcase to that that to them as well. Uh, yeah. Well, and uh, so out of university and then you, you were like, well, my parents want me to get a job and work. and uh, I'll open a brewery. Is that, is that <laughs> yeah. how it went? So I, uh, I headed off after that. Um, so I completed my degree. I, uh, I had a job offer. Uh, I did not know where I was going. I um, uh, was told it was a three-month contract. Uh, I was given a flight number. And wow. And uh, fronted up to the airport and uh, checked the flight number against where I was heading. I was heading to a place called Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. It's uh, 600 kilometres inland. It is um, uh, one of the largest regional populations in WA. It's right on the border of the desert and a place called the Great Western Woodlands. Um, it is red dirt, and I headed up there for uh, a three-month contract um, working within um, the environmental industry for mining. Um, so I'd used that time when I was up there to uh, obviously my first job out. I, I had uh, I had a lot of debt to pay off at that stage, so I, I did exactly that. And I continued homebrewing all the way through. So on the Friday, we, we were in a large share house. Um, there was, I think, about seven or eight of us at, uh, at um, uh, the, the maximum numbers that we managed to pack into this house. And um, I would I'd brew and I would produce beer for the entire house. And then on sort of Friday night, we'd have a little um, uh, jug that we'd put on top of the fridge. I'd put on top of the fridge and donations would come in and I would um, ultimately end up uh, uh, putting anything that I had as far as dollars go back into more equipment, growing growing up the size. And before I realised that I had a, almost a 300-litre um, system that was now sitting and occupying in the garage along with the the, the electricity bill and the water bill that had gone wow. along with it. So um, I'd honed some of my skills. I still I was still learning and I was still I had many willing test subjects who were willing to uh, try out some of these some of these beers as well. So I um, uh, eventually had earned enough money that I had a small kit sitting there and quite a lot of interest from the locals as well. And it was at that stage I bit the bullet and I purchased up um, one of the local warehouses that still housed a powder coating business. So I um, took on took on that powder coating 
not the business itself, but actually the warehouse until I could then afford to pay that building off. So I used the rental income and the, the dollars that were coming in from the, um, the brewing that I was do, doing on that Friday night to pay everything off and um, moved into that. And I think it was about uh, 2005, 2006. Um, and then I started the fit out of a with the idea of, of building a commercial brewery. So it took me almost three and a half, four years to do the fit out for that. Um, I had a lot of friends in trades and they helped and they worked um, and did very high, high quality workmanship and they uh, got paid in beer, you know. Um, so it was, it was a, um, a way that I could, I could um, pay off um, people that had skills that I did not have and they were, they were very good about that. Um, so yeah, so it took me a long time to build and a long time to uh, get into it. But by 2010, I had I had actually opened up the establishment. So it's Beaten Track Brewery in Kalgoorlie, in Western Australia. And at that stage, it was one of the um, only regional breweries in WA. I think it was the most remote brewery in Western Australia at that stage. It was um, like 500 feet from this uh, open open pit mine, that uh, gold mine, right? That's correct, yeah. So we have something in um, Kalgoorlie called the Super Pit. Um, it is the second largest gold mine in Australia. Uh, the um, uh, size of that, that, um, that, that pit is about two kilometres um, long by about half a kilometre wide and about half a kilometre deep. can be seen from space. And the opening to that that uh, area was just 500 metres from my front door. So um, we used to get quite a lot of tourists who came through the area. They'd go and visit um, the super pit and then they would come through and um, visit the brewery afterwards. And look at a giant hole in the ground and then go, I'm thirsty. Let's go have a beer. Yeah, yeah seems like a perfect location. <laughs> Were there any other traditions associated being that close to the pit? Like, a, you know, last call tours or pissing contests or much and fall in the pit there was um probably one of the most famous hotels which i might add i believe it is actually up for sale in um in boulder so um there's a a twin town so it's known actually as kalgoorlie boulder and um the uh pub down in the middle of boulder actually has a shaft a mining shaft that comes up inside the pub itself uh, legend has it that the miners would uh, pop up in the middle of the bar and um, get a lunchtime beer before heading back down and continuing on the activities for the afternoon. But you can actually go into the bar and over the top of this, it has a um, a perspex cover and you can actually see down shaft oh. all the way down to the bottom whilst you stand inside the pub. So it's uh, pretty remarkable. Anyone That's who cool. wants to check it out, it's called the Metropole Hotel in Boulder. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll hear more of Nick's adventures right after this.
Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back with uh, Nick Galton Fenty, uh, brewing consultant, and uh, we're kind of hearing his adventures. as, as, as he got started and, and opened his place and uh, there's a lot more to tell. Uh, I do have a question for you and this may seem, seem odd, but having been born in PNG, have you ever heard of the cuckoo cuckoo? <laughs> I have heard of it, but I do not know what it is. Uh, it's, it's a people uh, uh, tribe in, uh, in PNG. Uh, no, I, I read the- this book as a kid i found this book in the uh in the library and it was about this guy's experience kind of living with the cuckoo cuckoo and uh and they had been uncontacted before him and it it was just fascinating it's stuck with me ever since so uh, i've always had this fascination with the cuckoo cuckoo Um, there you go no, unfortunately, I cannot shed any light on the uh, on on that particular area within uh, within Papua New Guinea. But um, I'll, I'll now go and look it up and see if I can find any truth to the uh, to the story. <laughs> it's true. There were pictures. I, I <laughs> this is a fact. Um, <clears throat> so opening your your beaten track brewery. Uh, what would you say was the the things you did right? What were the things that uh, you made mistakes on? What, what, what if somebody else is opening a, a brewery and going through? Say it took you years to open that brewery. It mm. seems like you, you know, what you did that right. You probably uh, were able to, uh, you know, with with not a whole lot of money and with uh, you know calling on friends, you were able to build something that sounded pretty special. Mm. I am. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like a blunt instrument when it comes to that. I uh, will persevere in the, even in the sort of the face of not being able to persevere against it, and um, I will attempt to at least um, succeed on that idea. So I guess um, I, I, I pushed it through fairly bluntly. I guess is the best way. But um, I did learn a heck of a lot from that. I um, Initially, um, like a lot of other brewers, um, went around to the outlets that I believed I could possibly sell through, and their uh, response to 
everything was generally, yes, of course, we can sell your beers. There aren't going to be any issues. As soon as you are ready to go, um, let us know and we will sell your products for you. And the reality of which, once you do produce these products, is that you confront up to these places and they are under um, pouring rights arrangements or they are under a tied house. As I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with these, but they the taps and the um, advertising materials and promotional gear are all owned by larger um, production breweries. Mm -hmm. And as a consequence, trying to get a single tap point in there is near on impossible. So the existing or the, the initial customers who said, of course, we can stock your items. Actually, they didn't know their um, liabilities and their products either. So um, it suddenly turned out that what we thought we had a market for, um, I, I did not. Um, so the, the focus then turned after that to being able to sell on site from the actual warehouse itself. That also proved problematic as well. We had a funny law back in, uh, well, pretty much from about 1989 through to 2016 that stated if you were a brewery, you could not sell um, by the glass over the counter. If you're a winery, then you could. So there was a big discrepancy between the two different products and it took me uh, from 2010 through to 2016 to actually push the issue through Parliament to get beers, uh, to get brewers who produce beer under a producer's licence to be able to sell by the pint over the counter. If you're a winery, um, wineries could uh, sell by the glass under the same licence, but because it was just a different product. So um, that was the turning point within the business after that because there weren't a lot of places that I could wholesale out to, nor did I have the production um, to really meet some of their demands. I was just a very small little brewery. Um, so that change in legislation, which was spearheaded by a lady called Wendy Duncan, and she was um, um, an absolute uh, champion for small business small breweries in Western Australia. And what she did was um, she took she took my case through and as a consequence, we've had something like about another 20 breweries that have opened in Western Australia since that had gone through in 2016. So it was a real um, great outcome. For myself, it was even better because I could now sell by the pint over the counter and actually um, be able to sell my products. So I guess I was quite naive as far as where I could sell and how I could sell. But in, in doing so, I'd lost, you know, five years of, of effective trade out of that as well. The, um, I guess the next thing is looking at your ground conditions and looking at actually how much room you actually need for a uh, production commercial brewery. I'm sure both of, well, I'm sure you yourself, Jamil, have found out that you have uh, run out of room very, very quickly, very, very suddenly in a lot of occasions. The um, the mm -hmm. amount of room you think you need. Your, your brewery will fill the space available always, and then you'll want more space, and it, it never ends. Yeah. Um, but you have to just decide, I think. I think there's a minimum that you have to have. And then, you know, once you're past that, you just have to accept the fact that you have that size, unless you're willing to buy another building or build something you know it's just uh that's what you have so here we have 
about 25,000 square feet. Um, and it's never enough, you know, it's always, but it's a tall building. So we, we try and fill upwards. <laughs> that's yeah. it. That's it. And, um, you know, through, through that sort of mechanism, that's exactly where, where Beaten Track Brewery had, had ended up. And I, I had been able to take it to so far with so much, um, uh, so much room and uh, the new owners down there, Mitch and Alira Dadako, they are expanding and they are moving, moving premise and they're moving it up to one of the main streets. Uh, so that's uh, downtown Kalgoorlie now to meet that demand, which is, which is a real success story. So, it's, um, it is yeah, so you, you, you sold the brewery and you, you moved on to, to what? So um, I uh, had an opportunity in uh, Nevada and I was going to head across there to start a new operation. That was in uh, Elko or? Yeah, Elko, Nevada. That's correct. Yeah. And um, uh, been across to check out sort of the ground conditions, see some of the um, areas that were potential. We were looking at the uh, initially one of the old power stations that was there. It looked very promising as far as a um a building so i started uh, testing testing all this out buying some buying equipment basically getting it all ready to go unfortunately the uh the whole business deal fell through at the 11th hour and uh 10 days prior to flying out to start up in uh, full time there uh the whole system had um well all my all my ability to be able to do that had uh, had fallen away I'd, Suddenly found myself bankrupt and uh, and uh, homeless overnight to to uh, a series of decisions that had happened against me through no fault of my own at all, and um, I uh, suddenly yeah uh, found myself moving back with my parents at that stage. So I had a couple of choices: I could um, either you know accept the feat or see if I could pick up the pieces from all that and head across and salvage what I could and learn from that experience. And I did exactly that. I, I headed over to Nevada. I packed up what the equipment that I could salvage, anything that I couldn't I actually, I gave away. Um, so there was a lot of 115 volt um, um, equipment that I just, I could not I couldn't utilize even if I was sort of the head back to Australia. So there's a lot of very lucky people around at that stage who ended up with some very nice, um, nice brewing equipment. Um, so I then was there. I didn't have a lot of money left behind me at that stage. And I um, decided that I would um, travel across to meet with actually both of you in uh, World Beer Cup at that stage, I think it was. So that was uh, 2018 in, in uh, Nashville. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I spent uh, three months busing, hitchhiking, driving across the USA, stopping at every single brewery that I came to and uh, sampling uh, anything that I could sort of get my hands on and speaking with all the brewers and I picked up little bits of cash work here and there as I went through um, and most of it was just for food and board. So, um, you know, I was sort of sleeping in cars and motels and all that kind of thing at the time and I um, learnt a lot about brewing and if I wasn't stopping at a brewery, I was stopping at a, one of your, one of the, um, 
um, hiking trails and trailheads and going for a bit of a walk and, and learning a lot about about the US and about its brewing scene and about the people. So it was, uh, I loved it. It was, it, was, it was very good. But ultimately ended up at um, uh, World Beer Cup to uh, steward there with um, it was, uh, Chris Latham who sort of set me on that path. And for those who don't know who Chris Latham is, she's the uh, events and competition coordinator with the American Brewers Association. And she... Um, put me on the path to how and who and why could I speak to and and um, uh, yeah, she was she was a, a little bit of a lifeline at that stage so it was um, it was amazing and she introduced me to a lot of her friends and a lot of them invited invited me in I would teach them everything that I knew about beer and beer tasting and in turn they would uh, um, you know share food and um and give me some place to live so it was it was awesome well clearly the pivotal point in your life was talking to john and i <laughs> at world beer cup i think i think it all hinges on that the story was going nowhere until then <laughs> and then your life actually meant something and, is that correct? Would well, you, if you if you've seen on my um on my web page there as well, you'll you'll see the photos with uh, with both of you and and um and books etc. that uh, have inspired me all the way through, and I have learned a heck of a lot from. So, um, thank you very much to sharing your both of your knowledge for what you have done. It, it is really really good what you guys have both done for the industry is is spectacular. So was there was there uh you know some people or or something in the United States that was really memorable or you know uh you know one one piece of of knowledge that you learned about brewing that really you've you've carried forward or that you share with other people since the the one and it's it's not even a it's not even a, a significant moment as far as learning I do remember walking um in North Carolina in uh Wilmington and walking down the main street there and um for no other reason i looked up and i saw the untapped um sign from the head office that's down there in wilmington and i don't know what made it i don't know if you've seen the front office of what untapped looks like it is a horseshoe box that's only about five well from what i saw about three meters wide and and there's a single little sign that sort of hangs out the front and to my knowledge, I think I think that is its head office, and I, I don't know why I looked up at that stage, but uh, there was no other beer paraphernalia or anything else like that. But there was the untapped sign. I went, oh, very interesting. I, I wonder how I've come to be at this place at this time with the beer sign hanging over my head, with you know one of the biggest sort of social media providers on on beer that there probably is. And I just thought I just thought that was kind of fascinating. But everyone who I met taught me something about about beer and and how they got there and what their processes were. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, every single brewer that I met was too excited to tell me about their products and and how they came to be as well. And I, I, I learned a lot from every single person that I that I came through. So it was, it was really good. And then uh, you spent some time with the uh, the folks in in Boise, Idaho, as well, the home homebrewers out there. Um, let's take one more short break, and when we come back, I want to hear about uh, your time in Boise. Right after this.
Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're talking with uh, Nick Galtenzi about uh, his adventures uh, in brewing. And before the break, I was asking you about uh, the, the folks in, in, in Idaho because I actually really enjoy Idaho. I've been there a number of times. It's, it's one of our, I think it was our first out-of-state distributor was in Idaho. And, um, you know, I used to travel out there and people ask me, so... So I'm, I'm there visiting, you know, working the market, talking to people, doing, doing events. And people would ask me, they're like, so we're really appreciative, but why are you in Idaho? <laughs> question. I'm like, well, why not? You're like, most people don't come to Idaho with their beer, you know, um, and now it's, it's, become like a destination for pretty much everybody leaving California is going to Idaho. So kind of like Idaho or Arizona and uh, a lot of Idaho is a beautiful place. Lots of great people. The beer scene there is exploding. The beer and restaurant scene is exploding. It's really fascinating and and very enjoyable. But what year were you in in Idaho? So that was 2018. Um, Boise, if you haven't visited Boise in Idaho, it is an amazing place. As um, Jamil said, the, this, the brewing scene down there, you can do the Greenbelt Walk, which is all linked by uh, um, cycle cycleways. Uh, so there is no interaction with any sort of traffic at all. There are scooters, uh, hire scooters that you can hire all over the place, and you can get to and from eight breweries just up that um, just up in that one area um, the, the beers are of great quality the, the food and downtown scene in in Boise is amazing and they've got a great um, homebrew club there so one of the guys who I um, helped train up a guy called Ben Hinkle and he's still brewing at the moment we set up uh, his basement as a as a small microbrewery um as in a, a home home brewery sort of microbrewery um and the enthusiasm from they grow they grow their own hops there they um are innovative as far as what they do their facebook um uh um page always has little bits and pieces going on as far as the um the quality of it but uh the yeah the the scene in boise is amazing i can't uh, i can't rate probably Behind uh, Wilmington, would uh, Boise in Idaho would be one of my one of my favorite uh, places to go and visit. And I always do try and get back there whenever I do um, mm-hmm. head back to the US. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing place, and you know, in in some ways, um, uh, you know, the there's the, I see other little knots of this same thing happening. Uh, you know, Reno is is kind of you know taking that same kind of course where. You know, they're adding more, you know, great restaurants and, you know, breweries and cool breweries, cool places to go. It's like these little uh, enclaves are, are starting. Um, speaking of Reno, I did want to mention uh, our other sponsor, uh, main sponsor, uh, Brew Chatter, uh, brewchatter.com. Uh, RJ and Josh, great folks. They have a wonderful uh, homebrew shop there. Uh, anything you need for your, your, your brewing day, they've got. You can order it online or you can go in in person. 
and uh, talk to those guys. They're always there and they've got uh, you know, the freshest ingredients and uh, the coolest equipment. So check them out, uh, brewchatter.com. Uh, all right, so you did the Boise thing and then, and then where did you go? What, what happened after that? Well, the time, um, so uh, I then headed up to Canada and I repeated the same process as what I'd, I'd done. I started off in uh, Winnipeg, Winnipeg, it was, and I then moved all the way from there through to Toronto, stopping at, again, every single brewery. And the people that I met at those brewery pubs on my travels were just simply amazing. Um, I, you know, friends who I will always keep in contact with, people like Chris, who sort of, you know, we just ended up getting uh, talking at the at the pub and he said, oh, I've got spare place. Just just let's uh, let's get a bunch of beers. And, uh, you know, and he was, he was a real beer enthusiast. He wanted to know everything about beer. And I met so many people like that on that, on that, um, on that oh, trip. They're Canadians. They're, they're nicer <laughs> like that, you know. <laughs> In America, you don't get that, but Canada, you sure. Yeah, I, I had the same experience in, in both countries. Uh, it was it was really was quite good. I um I finally rolled up in uh, in Toronto, and I I sort of was trying to work out what my next next move was. When I had a phone call from um a friend of a friend of a friend who said, "Oh, I know this guy who's um who's um." A brewer, and they were looking to start a brewery in an estate in um, the UK. And they phoned me up and said, "Are you interested in coming across?" And I said, "Well, look, you know, I've got no place to be and and no rush to do it." So um, they said, "Right, we'll buy your ticket across." And um, so I, I jumped across and landed in London, and then made my way uh, over to a place called the Newnham Estate, in which they are. A very old historic estate. It's the largest land holding um, in Oxfordshire, um, and it has a number of um, different properties that are that are on the on the premise, including an old um, packing shed. And they wanted to turn that into a into a brewery. Um, it's still an ongoing um, task and process. There's a lot of approvals that that do need to go through. There's a um, places like a deconsecrated church that are on site um, that um, may well form part of the future of of that sort of area. Um, so I did an assessment for them, um, and that that is still ongoing. But in the meantime, I'd sort of met a series of other people through getting to Newnham Estate that said, oh, we are looking for brewers and we do need some knowledge. Um, the UK um, microbrewing micro scene doesn't have a lot of um, uh, kegs sort of style beers. It has a lot of cask beer, as you're probably well aware, and cask makes up a majority of focus in everywhere that is sort of outside of Bristol and London. Bristol and London are very progressive sort of areas, but if you move into some of the more traditional areas like Kent and Dorset, they are staunchly cask, traditional, real ales, camera, and it is an incredible scene. Um, if you've never had the opportunity to, to try a fresh cask of real ale through a hand pump or directly out of a cask, it is a, um, it's a life-changing experience, and I, I just went, I... I I, I have to know how to how to do this. I um, um, 
was working um, at a number of places, including um, uh, Breakwater down in Dover. And they've got a, a great little tap room and tap house um, in Dover. So if you've ever wanted to visit the White Cliffs down there, they are the only um, micro pub um, and microbrewery down there. Um, and Tom, the head brewer down there, produces just an exceptional um, quality cask and keg beer. So I do urge anyone to who is travelling through Dover to go check that out. Um, I then picked up more work as I headed across over to Dorset and at uh, Dorset Brewing Company. And Dorset Brewing Company uh, was a was a very interesting place. They had um, they've been established for the last twenty five years. They'd taken on some of the assets of um, uh, if anyone's familiar with the Thomas Hardy's um, okay. ale, and they'd uh, so that was the, from the Eldridge Pope uh, Brewery that shut down in two thousand and two. And the Eldridge Pope Brewery had been established. Jeez, uh, here now we're testing me. Uh, Eighteen seventy, I believe it was. So it's it's over a hundred years old as brewery, um, and it's right in the centre of Dorchester. There, so there was a there was all the old older sort of casts that that um, a guy called Giles Smith then picked up. I learned so much about cask ales, real ales from. Giles and the, and the crew that was there. I could also pass on a lot of my information because they were looking to modernise up some of their um, mechanisms and um, uh, I was doing a lot of the QAQC recipe development and then redefining recipes. A lot of um, these recipes had um, been in existence for around 10 years and needed a little bit of a shake-up as far as costings, um, uh, looking at ways to be more efficient and as, as you're both aware in order to be a you you are a business you're not just producing good good beers you have to turn a dollar in order to be able to do that as well mm-hmm. and um, i was very thankful to um to that position um, that i got there so um i where did i head up from from there so from there um the i had an opportunity to head over to the west indies and um, I headed to the Carib Brewery in the West Indies um, and uh, started learning how to um, produce uh, lagers and some of the downstream products from them. So they produce uh, some of their brands like Carib, um, Skull, Stag, uh, Guinness, Mackesons, uh, Royal Stout. And uh, again, the guys there. Um, the brewery was established there in 1960, so it is a very, very old, old brewery in its own right. And I did learn a lot from um, from the guys there. So, so that's a lager brewery. Yeah, and they produce Guinness. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, they are the only licensees in that area. There's there are four production is, breweries. This yeah. is the story that we've heard. It's like Guinness sends out kind of like an extract that is added to a lager beer. And that is what Guinness is in those areas. What can you say on this on this uh on this uh subject? I guess it's uh, it's kind of like um the Colonel Sanders and the you know the the eleventh herb and herbs and spices, you know, the eleventh one that gave it away. Um, there is, um, there are definitely um, a lot of uh, trade secrets that, that do happen with that 
And um, unfortunately, I'm not at liberty to say, but uh, they do a um, uh, uh, a little bit of a care package. And there are things that are sent from the um, are, are things that are sent from Dublin and Ireland, and I believe it is just so, a, a mix of. Um, would it would it be correct to say that the Carib Brewery only produces lagers, uses lager yeast? Only they, uses lager yeast. Yeah, they are. They do only use lager yeast. Yeah, um, but the uh, it's it's the. It's the uh, smooshed up leprechaun and clover. That's the uh, that's the <laughs> that's the clincher to it. So if you're wondering what the eleventh heaven spice was, we'll just say it could be one of those. Well, and uh, you said they, they make the royal uh, stout. Yeah, I've had that. Um, where did I have it last? I think I had it in uh, Singapore or uh, maybe Thailand or something. Uh, Royal Stout, uh, maybe it was Singapore. It was delicious. I thought it was actually one of the one of the better ones. I'm not sure if it's the same Royal Stout, but it was a Royal Stout in One of their original brands. So um, it was one of their brands that was actually established in 1960. Uh, the it's a milk stout, six percent, so it's strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you had it in a can, um, may have been brewed under license somewhere else but from the island themselves. Uh, it's produced in a 275 mil returnable glass um, package. And that's one of the great things about the island is that all the glass is returnable, reusable. The size of the cleaning and washing um, facilities there is just simply enormous and it's roughly about the size of your whole brewery as far as just their glass and glass packaging so Mm -hmm. they um they export from there to the us the uk um and to northern brazil as well so it's uh it's quite a quite an exercise in logistics i've seen the carib beer but i haven't seen i don't think i can get the royal stout here in the us no. So you've got um, Royal Maiden producing Florida by one of their sister breweries. Wow, there you go. Mm. There you go. Uh, so you, you got out there, and, and what is it? You learned something about lager brewing there, but you know, what did you do for them? What what was the your your purpose there? So my 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 basic role was actually to introduce new products um, and specifically IPA. So just actually just finished doing a rollout of the IPA um, just over the weekend, and so we were looking at mechanisms about using existing product streams um, and how to tailor those without having to go through uh, developing an entirely new product line. So with the Caribbean um, and specifically for St. Kitts and Nevis, 70% of the island's GDP is actually generated by tourism, um, which is significant. The population isn't huge. We've only got about 30, I think it's 35,000 people who live there permanently. Up to 15,000 people a week visit the island in a normal um, week of trade. So it's a very important part of their um uh economy with the lack of the tourist boats coming through and with the difficulties of the returning students who are coming um back to the area um, 
St Kitts also has one of the largest um, veterinary training schools in the world and a lot of USA students come through to do their training there. Um, their selection is five different kinds of lagers, so a lot of the students sort of tend to um, query, oh, can we get an IPA here? And there were a few smaller outlets that were um, being able to import um, from the U.S., but unfortunately, with the trading conditions with COVID, um, the students went there. The businesses, unfortunately, shut down, and there wasn't a lot of um, of work that could be done towards it. We still managed to develop the products. However, the uh, everything sort of got on to hiatus until 2022, until we can actually get the the markets reestablished. So that ended on the first time. So that was the last tour that I did there, and that was back on 2019, uh, start of 2020. So I flew pretty much just back as the borders all shut in St. Kitts. I flew back into the UK, um, made a number of frantic phone calls to people um, saying, I need somewhere, I need work and I need somewhere to live. Um, I, I guess... The one thing I haven't sort of provided is over the last four years, I've been traveling around with a 10 kilo backpack, and that is pretty much all that I have to my name. So <laughs> I've been living out of a 10 kilo backpack for four years now. When I flew back in and I contacted uh, Dorset Brewing, and they said, Well, everything is all shut down, but we need someone to maintain yeast and online sales and bottling, bottling and uh, production. So I slept on the uh, the floor of the brewery for five months whilst, um, whilst I took care of uh, all their day-to-day operations. This is the kind of employee I need. Somebody <laughs> who will just like sleep on the floor of the brewery and make everything happen. Uh, I, yeah. You know, if you need a... If you, need, if you want to come out and hang out, Boise is not very far from where we're at. It's short flight, uh, a longer drive, but, you know, you, you could come and uh, hang here. I've got plenty of force placers space for you to, to lay down. Uh, I could offer you sacks of grain to sleep on. I'm just saying. That would be a luxury. <laughs> well, if you'll spring for a blanket, Jamil, I think he might be might be interested. Yeah. I'll get you two blankets. I'd um I'll hold you to that, Jamil. It's uh, California, it's not that cool. No, exactly right. But uh yeah, the um it, it was it was a, again a really good experience the uh you know um maintaining maintaining the brewery and um in in that sort of time i mean it's sort of it's, it's very much as everyone sort of uses the term unprecedented so having to run a, a uk 20 barrel brewery house so we're talking um three and a half thousand liters um not sure what the u.s um barrel equivalent is there but uh, having to run that you know as a sole sole person um for a for a five month stretch was um was a good challenge and uh you know the the yeast that we use at at uh at that at that brewery is a, a 1970 strain um bass bass yeast um and it is a house yeast and it, it requires a lot of care and attention it requires brewing every you know well normally four times or four times a week, but, uh, you know, due to production requirements, we're only really brewing about once every 10 days to 14 days. 
Mm. So um, having to come up with some clever mechanisms of how to feed this yeast and how to maintain something that's so old and so historic. And it is a very unique yeast. It's, a, you know, an 83% attenuating yeast. It gives incredibly neutral um, profiles at, at 18 degrees. It develops quite a lot of um, uh, ester formation at uh, 22 degrees and it's so highly flocculent, keeping it in suspension can be a little bit challenging sometimes, but uh, it's such a unique thing. And, uh, you know, we're up to generation almost 300, 300 of that particular wow. yeast. And it's, uh, it's been, a, it's, it's a, it's a 20% wild yeast, 80% um, original strain. And uh, yeah, I've never tasted anything quite like it. Um, now, what, what kind of fermenters are you using there? Um, so we are on a three um, three thirty barrel um, uni tanks. We're on two uh, twelve barrel open fermenters and one um, bright tank. And um, the open ones, I try not to use as much, but they are definitely an overflow <laughs> if they're actually required. Um, but it it we do produce um, real ale and cask ale from there. So a single single run would would yield somewhere between about eighty and ninety casks of beer. Which is with all the pubs now. I mean, we just hit the first anniversary of lockdown in the UK here just yesterday. So it's pretty much been about twelve months of continuous rolling trade shuts which has been decimating for the industry no pubs are open anyone who doesn't have a tap room is um is yeah. uh suffering quite quite severely um the pubs are due to open on the 14th um of next month so anyone who does have an outdoor beer garden and everyone's is eagerly gearing up to uh, to provide pubs so i'm sure there'll be a nationwide celebration as soon as that's uh, <laughs> that's happened the sound of of beer uh glasses being drained uh yeah i've heard that um the uni tanks uh the cylindrical uh, uh uni tanks will uh cause the yeast to uh flocculate more some of these strains that were normally would, uh, you know, uh, uh, top crop easily. They, you know, uh, I think uh, in particular, I heard this related to Fuller's when they shifted mm -hmm. tanks, when they, they brought in this equipment, I guess. Uh, we're told they brought in this equipment originally do loggers, and then they ended up uh, not doing the loggers, but switched their other beers over to it. And um, they found that the yeast started to, you know, drop to the bottom. Uh, because of that have you have you seen something similar to that i've seen uh, you know a lot of you know top crop beers there i've seen uh you tinkers but you usually don't see the two mixed no exactly right um i was i was genuinely surprised by um you know when you're doing sort of findings tests and flocculation tests on this how they behave so differently in the in the different barrels we've got as i said the two um much uh smaller but open um fermenters behave very very differently and produce a vastly different beer to that of the uni tanks um the pressure settling and even just the pressure at the bottom of those cones in suppressing 
the asters is is remarkable. And we've done a number of trials there, um, splitting that into smaller fermenters, and we get a completely different beer from from each right. different vessel we put into. Um, but same wort and same same yeast, and the, the size of the vessels really does have a has a, a an effect on it. I remember when I when I started home brewing, one of the things I was curious about was you know they, they started coming out with these tiny little conical fermenters they you know glass carboys plastic buckets and then people also fermenting in uh, corny kegs you know tall and skinny and so i did a side by side on all of those and each beer was was different you could, you could taste the difference between these things in a, in a blind triangle and i was shocked I, you know i thought well you know but you know, the flat bottom of the the carboy versus the, the you know the skinny you know kind of a little bit coned of the of the uh, uh, corny kegs and then the the conical fermenter and people still don't believe me but I preferred the heat beer out of the uh, carboys the glass carboys I always thought that that was best uh, at least flavor wise to me I think a, a big part of it was the broad flat surface of the the yeast when it flocculated you still had a large yeast surface area versus all these other um fermenters you had um you know a kind of compacting of the yeast and the the surface area presented for cleaning up at, at the end of fermentation was was reduced and i think that that was the difference you know uh in in hindsight but uh yeah uh, fascinating. Uh, yeah. you know, the, the differences in, in just changing your fermenter geometry and what it what it does to the beer. Well, we've got our yeast expert right on hand with us. You know, um, John Palmer's. You know, uh, you know what he's what he's written as far as that is. Uh, you know, um, incredible. You know, some of that research and knowledge there is just unreal. Thank you. <laughs> um, right. Uh, one last break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of Nick right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. Uh, Nick, I I got another question for you. Of all the beers that you have uh, brewed commercially or breweries that you've worked with commercially does any one of them you know stand out to you or any particular beer really stand out to you as one of your you know or maybe you got a couple of uh, you know real favorites that you think are world class yeah yeah absolutely look from the stuff that from the stuff that i've made i um i spent my first probably six to eight months redeveloping a lot of a lot of the Dorset Brewing Company's um, portfolio, and in changing some of those up and getting the balance and the um, salt ratios and the malt profiles correct, uh, it's been some of the best beer that I've ever ever had in my life. I've I haven't tasted anything quite like it, and. And as soon as I go away and do not have access to it, I, I miss it. I, I, I miss the taste. I miss the flavor. I miss that um, that level of complexity from such a simple um, malt bill and from such a, you know, one or two hot sort of, um, but 
as I said, what is the key to that particular brewery is it's, it's how strained yeast it is. It's just something I've, I've never, I've never experienced before. Um, every single brewery that I've, I've worked at, um, I have learned and I've been taught something, you know, by the brewers that have been there. They've always said, oh, no, we, we do it this. Science doesn't normally say that you would do that. So explain out why you would do it. And there's, uh, you know, um, as we as we know with beer, you sort of got ninety uh, percent maybe science, you know, two percent luck, and then the eight percent witchcraft that sort of goes on with that. And sometimes it's the witchcraft that um, gives the um, that little little edge over. Uh, as far as commercial um, that I haven't brewed, I would say the um, the the pre. Um, Bottle con- and when they used to do the bottle conditioning of the Hogarden Grand Cru when it had the uh, the forbidden fruit yeast that mm-hmm. was associated with that and um, refermented in the bottle was probably one of my favourite all time beers until until it changed. So I have been on a quest ever since to recreate that that Grand Cru using those yeasts and I'm not even sure you can still get hold of forbidden fruit as far as a strain goes. But um, it's banked. I think I think you can get it. Uh... You know, uh, you know, I, I fully expected you to mention heretic, but that, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I thought that's where we we're going, but uh, apparently not. Uh, you know, one of one of my favorites is uh, Harvey's, uh, yeah. the best bitter, because it's that same thing. You know, it, I guess they have nine or eleven organisms in their in their uh, culture at this point, and you know, it it develops this thing and. You know, there's there's a lot to be said for, well, the brewer, you know, thought it tasted good, you know, and the customers thought it tasted good. And so it it just went that way. And then they made a choice of, well, this this tastes better. And, you know, the the, the culture just kind of, you know, they, they started putting some uh, natural selection, a little bit of pressure on we want it to taste this way. Mm-hmm. And over time, it. it just became you know this great beer i'm really you know would love to uh you know here we're like the moment the yeast starts to drift away from what 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 we started with it's like out with that something you know get a new pitch start over and you know at the, the first inkling we, we we do that i would love to just run a pitch of yeast and you know do whatever we do with it and just kind of make selections based off of taste and see where it goes uh but that's just not something that you know to, you know a u.s uh brewery tends to do mm. no and it's a very risky it is a risky process because if any of your you know when well, i said we've uh you know some of these yeasts have been harvested over 300 times before they've you know before we even sort of looked at doing a reprop or looking at, at anything like that but it's that is what makes the beer the 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 um the organisms uh, the the yeast themselves um as i said it's 20 percent wild yeast um component have um adapted perfectly to those conditions over that 25 year period um, and they are so at home as far as their um, fermentations and the profiles and and how they've been treated, that they they suddenly behave very um, 
uh, reliably as far as their tastes and flavours, which is which is completely uh, counterintuitive to what you'd think with a yeast. And, it's, you know, we've all done, we've sort of go to about seven, six or seven pitches and then we then have to blend, you know, um, the first pitch of, of you know, a, a new prop with, with seven so we can blend out some of those weird flavours that go on with the first lot and then... Um, but yeah, I, I haven't I haven't experienced anything quite quite like that one. It's been I mean, this is the one of the things I think people don't appreciate about the UK brewing scene. You know, people are like, oh, Belgium, and you know, uh, all of the flavors and all this. You know, in the UK, there's you know that exists too. There is there is history, and there is right. uh, uh, you know these these cultures that have you know been developed in these and this way of brewing that is unique. And I don't think it's appreciated as much because the beer is so delicate that it does not travel well. It, it has to be live and fresh and, you know, real, uh, for want of a better word, you know, to really appreciate what, what's going on. And exactly. you can't bottle that up and ship it like you can, you know, some of these Belgian beers, German beers, whatever. And, you know, um, and so I think it's in great danger of being lost because nobody can appreciate it unless you travel there. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, you look at some of those, you know, we've, I've, I've been very fortunate enough to see all the behind the scenes and um, be um, uh, not hugely involved in it, but like places like uh, Hall and Woodhouse. I mean, Hall and Woodhouse started in 1777. It's um, an exceptionally old brewery. So a, new, a newer brewery yeah, on UK terms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, the new kid on the block. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, 1777, Shepherd Neem, um, you know, um, it does Spitfire. And, right. and you spent uh, time there as well. Yeah. Yeah. I um, Not as far as production goes, but as far as being able to speak with the engineers and um, the brewers and experience all of their products. Um, uh, I have one of my friends who is involved on um, their board side of things. And I, yeah, I've been very fortunate to see a lot of their behind the scenes sort of um, processes there as well. The Spitfire is an incredible, incredible beer. Um, and again, the, the history behind it and you know, the age of these breweries. I mean, their new, they, they refurbished their new mash tunnel, I think, was in 1950. That was their new refurbished one. So oh, yeah. Brand new. 70 new years old. <laughs> so, um, and, uh, you know, the, I, I think that people underestimate exactly how intimately involved uh, as far as pubs and breweries go and happen in the UK. You could always get a pint, a pint of ale in the pub. You know, the, the, the pub was your original internet. It was where you had your mail sent. It's where you had um, your, it was where you met up with friends, where you swapped all the ideas. And, and before, you know, uh, levels of communication everything revolved around the pub it was such an important cornerstone and you can't go into a single village in anywhere in in the uk without going down um you know a road called brewer's muse or brewer's brewer's road or malting street um every you know you always had a, a malting's house just about in every single every single village so it was the cornerstone of, of um, British um, 
uh, a British way of life. Um, so I think, you know, when everyone sort of says, oh, the, the pubs are all shut here, I don't think people understand exactly um, what the ramifications of that are because everything has has revolved around pubs for so long. Um, mm-hmm. The big brewers own pubs and, you know, some of, the, some of the big brewers own 300 pubs and they supply the pubs. Um, there's so many independents which are your... Um, you know, they're the carriers of all the smaller, smaller brewers, but yeah, it's mm. big. Now what's, what's next for you? Very good question. Oh, okay. It's, uh, <laughs> so at the moment I'm involved with um, a place called the Y Valley Meadery and they've just moved into their first foray in brewing. Um, we've just put down the first two batches. They were based in Shepstow, Southern Wales. Um, just finished moving their entire brewery in under four weeks, re-established that brewery and um, have now put down the first two beers, which I'll be travelling back up there next week to go and package. So we've got um, two new ones. We've got the Hive Mind IPA, a 5.8%, uh, very simple um, malts, bills, um, single hop citra, um, something that's you know, designed just to um, showcase. We did a uh, test trial batch of that in August of last year and that sold very, very well. And so we're doing a second run of that one. And then secondly, the Big Smoke, which is a 7% um, smoked quarter. We're using all Warminster um, uh, malts in that one. So from Warminster, a very old heritage um, Malt house here in the UK. I don't know if you've, if you've both had a chance to use Warminster malts at all. Mm-mm. No. 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 Um, so it's a smaller malting house, but um, great quality. And uh, uh, I've had limited limited use of their malts so far, but what I've seen, it's it's been really really good. So I um, uh, they they're mead producers. They also produce a range of modern meads. Um, so we're looking at ways of um, streamlining their processes, reducing their um, fermentation times. They do a traditional mead, which is um, a 14%. And we're looking at their previous uh, production on that was around six months and um, looking to reduce that down to one to two months for production oh. by essentially applying the same sort of techniques for brewing as we do for mead production. So, um Got some uh, the two guys there, two brothers, Matt and um, Kit Newell, and they uh, Matt runs all his own hives. So um, they they have all their own bees, all their own hives. They harvest all their own honey, full use in the meadery itself. And so I'm being taught a, a lot about um, about uh, mead production there as well, which is very very exciting. So we go out and don all the beekeeping seats and. Uh, 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 and yeah, we're just uh, in the start of the season at the moment, and hopefully we'll we're just using last year's honey. So all the beers that we produce all have a honey component into them. So we are using all their own honey for the production, and um, yeah, very excited by this process. So the um, the tap room is uh, either occur at the their warehouse and production facility itself. And the second place we're looking at doing is in a place called Caldicott Castle. Caldicott Castle built in, I think it was 1067. Uh, so, again, a very new um, yeah, modern new uh, building. 
facility. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, to my knowledge, it'll be the first uh, tap room in a castle in the world. So I'm not sure of any other tap rooms that have been built into castles. The Grade 1 Heritage listed building, so it's going to hold a number of challenges as far as what we can and cannot do. So, um, uh, but, you know, drinking a... Um, a horn of ale, a braggot or mead from a, uh, a, a castle built in 1067, I think holds quite a lot of appeal to. I uh, definitely want to visit. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be good. Yep. So, um, so you mentioned the Y Valley. Is that the same valley where the Y target hops come from? Do you know? Look, I actually saw them. Um, the Because uh, I know they've been produced. Uh, um, in New Zealand as well at the moment, I did see. I haven't. I haven't managed to follow a lot of the, the latest trends, but I did see Y hops were being offered offer, um, offered from New Zealand in a in an email that I saw this morning. I'm. I do not know. Unfortunately, I'm going to say it's one of the only Ys that I've come across there. So that, um, if I do find out, I'll let you know definitely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Another reason to come visit. Yeah. Oh. I, I can't wait for, for you both to be able to uh, travel again. You can both come and check it out, and I can uh, and I can host. We've got um, quite a, a lot of people who have lined up, ready to go for hopefully October of this year. So um, mm. obviously, as soon as as soon as we're all allowed, um, let's uh, let's do some collaboration brewing there, and um, yeah, we'll, uh, do some some car scales and um, and some some. You know, hand pumped poured poured um, ales as well, and uh, you can see and taste for yourself because I'd I'd love some of your feedback on um, some of these products because I think I'm 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 so excited about about them, and I, I think I, I think you guys would be as well. Nice, sounds good. Yeah, I'll I'll plan on it. Um, yeah, who knows? Maybe uh, GBBF uh, uh, happens this year. Hard hard to say. It's kind of one of those things that may or may not happen. I don't know. Well, I'm always interested. All right. Well, thank you, Nick, uh, so much for joining us. Uh, I could, I could uh, talk to you for, for hours, but uh, we've got to call it in because uh, the shows are the show what they are. Um, <laughs> thank you. Enjoy the show. Oh, and if anybody wants to get hold of you for consulting, uh, did you want to? Uh, uh, give any sort of way to contact you? Yep, they can get hold of me via um, at Nick's Ale House, all one word, and it's all on Twitter or Instagram, so at Nick's Ale House. And please feel free to get in touch. Um, I love to see a brewery succeed, and I really enjoy what the brewing community has to offer. Um, so, yeah, if you've got queries, comments, um, if you've got anything that you think I could help you with please let me know because um yeah i'd love to learn as well and um thanks very much to the the whole brewing community who got me here and have taught me everything that i know including you both so i loved your books i love um the uh enthusiasm that you both put into the industry and the um the time and effort that you both um have have you know allowed all of us to um uh, reap the benefits of your knowledge Thank you. That's very, very kind of you. All right. Uh, that's our show for today. Uh, thanks for, thanks for listening. And, uh, 
keep on keep on brewing. Brew strong, everybody. Brew strong. Brew strong.